May the words that we've sung be emitting from earnest hearts. We long, Father, to represent you. We long to know you better, to draw close in faithfulness. And we turn now to a careful consideration of your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. We ask that you would open these scriptures to our understanding by the ministry of the Spirit. And we need particular help here today. Help us to know and understand your truth, to see Christ for who he is, to draw close in our affections through a challenging passage. And for those who know not Christ as Savior, may they see light that they've not seen before. Together, we gather at your throne, and we ask that you will minister your word to to your assembly, to those who know you, and to those we trust who are being brought to the light of saving faith in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. As we come in our journey through Hebrews to Hebrews chapter 7. I think it's a fitting question in light of the text before us today to ask, what is the difference between a priest and a pastor? What's the difference between a priest and a pastor? I raised this question one day with a professing believer who had grown up in the Roman Catholic Church and he had no idea, which I thought was somewhat revealing. But could you distinguish the difference between say, a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Russian Orthodox priest and a pastor of a church such as ours. Much of the distinction hinges on our perception of God's unfolding plan of redemption through the ages. We should all recognize that God's salvation plan is no haphazard affair. God meticulously crafts the unfolding plan of salvation, progressively revealing truth from age to age along the way. Truth that's illumined by the preceding stages of the plan. So think of a wedding and the parade of attendance in a wedding processional. They prefigure, in a sense, the bride and the groom. And so, biblical revelation is always preparing God's people for fuller truth that is to come and to find its fulfillment ultimately in Christ. And when you watch the attendants proceed down the aisle, you don't say to yourself, wow, this is nauseatingly cyclical. A meaningless recycling of this pattern going absolutely nowhere. I mean, there's been some where there's enough attendance I begin to verge into that, but no, that's not what you're thinking. What are you thinking? I know where this is leading. This is preparing us for the bride and the groom and everything to kind of find their climax there. That's what this whole processional is about. Think of that as a figure of how God works as He reveals His salvation plan. He sends down the aisle of time, the corridors of time, types. That is the establishment of some type of idea, a system, a person, an event, an institution. And that is preparing us for what is to come. To give us kind of carve out a concept in that type that will find its fulfillment in what is called an antitype. The fulfillment of that preparation is working itself toward us. 
Well, what does that mean for us? It means that we must learn to see in the Old Testament the relationship between such persons and acts and events and institutions and their corresponding fulfillment in the outworking and the perfecting of God's salvation plan. Now, our, our task here is not to get cute. It's not to find Jesus like it's a Where's Waldo thing and try to fit things in that really aren't intended to be there, but to get the real sense that God, as the author of salvation history, is helping us carve out a concept, an institution, a person, a plan, and to see the fulfillment of that plan in the days to come. Let me throw in one little quick point here, which I did, I guess, earlier in the teaching time as well, but read the Old Testament. You need to read the Old Testament. You don't need to spend as much time in certain sections as others, but read it. Read it. It is there for us. And we we understand the fulfillment much better by understanding the preparation for the fulfillment. Quick free commercial break there for the Old Testament. But the author of Hebrews has touched on this approach to reading the Bible. We've seen it several times in the book, very clearly displayed. But notice chapter 5. In verse 10, Hebrews 5 and verse 10, we just draw back there. Speaking of Christ, he is designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So here's a priest that we know the, the Old Testament priestly system goes through Levi and through him to the clan of Aaron. But here is a priest after a different order, the order of Melchizedek. <clears throat> Remember what he said in verse 11. Now about this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain. Well, I'm, I'm thankful for that phrase, especially today, before Hebrews chapter 7. It's hard to explain. But it's hard to explain in their case, particularly for this reason, you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need meat, not solid food. Now, with that rebuke, he then begins to warm toward the readers and does place, indeed, significant trust upon them and takes them now, with that preparation, into chapter 7. So I'm not as daring as this author with that congregation and with you, but if I could say to you, you are dull of hearing, you need milk and not meat, but then I bring you to Hebrews 7, it's like, this is time for meat. This is real meat. This takes us deep into the treasure trove of the Old Testament, which is so essential for us to know that the trust we have in Christ is real. God has prepared us to understand who He is. And so we need to dig deeply here into this passage. As we do that, as we work toward Jesus as our great high priest and understanding His ministry, we have to bring some of the Old Testament with us here. He's leaning everything upon the Old Testament Scriptures. And I, for those perhaps that are, are not as familiar with the text of Scripture for our children and those growing to understand the truths of the Scriptures, let me just provide some essential background to the interpretation of Hebrews 7. You've got to come with these things in place. Three people and two passages. Fairly straightforward for many of us, and that's Abraham. The man of faith, the hero of Israel, the hero of the book of Genesis. Secondly is Melchizedek. We read of him in Genesis 14 and the 
interchange between Abraham and Melchizedek. Much on that to come. But Melchizedek, who was he? We don't have a whole lot of idea. But we have enough, and we find him in Genesis 14. Then Aaron and Levi, that is the Levitical priestly system of the Old Testament of the Israelite people, established on Mount Sinai, given to Moses, and the clan of Aaron particularly, under that larger tribe of Levi as the priests in, uh, that uh, ministered at the tabernacle. There's, so there's a whole priestly system and ritual. You have to have at least a foggy sense of what that is to make any sense of Hebrews 7. Now, two passages. One is Genesis 14. Terry read that for us here earlier, and we saw Melchizedek and Abraham crossing paths. And, this, and the second is Psalm 110 and verse 4. Perhaps, if it's helpful to you, you might want to have that just open for you or marked for you throughout the sermon today. But here it is. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is David speaking of his greater son to come. That he would be king-priest of the order not of Aaron, not not a Levite, but of the order of Melchizedek. What the author does with that is taxing on our minds. It is difficult to perceive how he's reasoning through this, but we're going to give it a shot, and we're going to dig deeply into the meat, remembering that the author's told us God by his Holy Spirit has said, you can't really get very far if you're dull of hearing. We're going to have to work hard through this passage to understand. So it brings us to Hebrews chapter 7. We find in the first ten verses, Melchizedek's priesthood supersedes Aaron's priesthood. Can I give just a quick reminder again? This can just sound like theology disconnected from my life. This is how we know that our trust in Jesus is is right. This is how we come to perceive we've not made a mistake about him. Through the ages, over time, God has been sending down by way of illustration, various couples down the aisle. In preparation for Christ, our high priest, how do we know? How are we sure? We have to understand this. This is his pedigree. This is where we understand who he is. So, working through it now, chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, I probably should just read verse 20 there. We read this last week, but where Jesus has gone as a forerunner into the heavenly realms, on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's the introduction to him. Now, verse 1 of 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. We'll stop there for a moment. These verses provide a brief summary of what we've already read this morning in Genesis 14. Fairly straightforward. Melchizedek, though, what very important to note, who was he? He was a priest of the Most High God. He's not just any priest of any pagan god, but he is the priest of the Most High God. Monotheism was not invented by Abraham. Abraham was a pagan. He worshipped probably a moon god, knowing the area where he was raised and the The psalmist lets us know that he was indeed a pagan. He came to monotheism, but he didn't invent it. Everyone was a monotheist before Genesis 11. 
And so there were worshipers of the one true and living God on some level. We don't have a whole lot of record about who they were. But Melchizedek was one of those individuals and served as a priest and a king. Now there's two noteworthy developments in Genesis 14 summarized here. What were they? Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils of this military victory to Melchizedek. In verses 2 and 3, the author now draws three conclusions from Abraham's interchange with this rather mysterious man. Continuing with verse 2, he, the, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, that is, Melchizedek is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So who is this Melchizedek character? First, you can just look at his name. Melech is the Hebrew word for king. And Sedek is the Hebrew word for righteousness. He's a king of righteousness. He brings righteousness to the scene. He's also the king of Salem, which is almost certainly becomes Jerusalem, related to the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. So there's, there's much, again, our, I mean, we name children because it sounds pretty. But for them, they named children very purposefully to describe something about their character. And this man, named whether at childhood or later, is the king of righteousness and the one who brings peace. He, he rules over the city of peace. Well, it, it makes your skin start to tingle when you hear that, right? That, that we know where that's headed. We know what's to come. The, the king of righteousness, the one who presides over the city of peace pointing us to this great high priest that we see in 620, our Lord Jesus Christ. But we learn in verse 3 that he is not only a king, but a priest. He is a priest forever, we find there at the end of verse 13. Now, key phrase in verse 3 is that word resembling, translated that way in our text here, the word resembling. Melchizedek was not the pre-incarnate Christ, as some Christians suggest. He resembled this one. He, he was not him in actuality. But as a priest of God, Melchizedek, Mel Melchizedek typologically resembled the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, in that he is a priest forever. Now, there's a key to understanding this Melchizedek and how it's being applied to Christ. We've just got to grab here. God uses Melchizedek to point forward to the priest that Melchizedek prefigures. So it's like God is just giving us a sketch, and we have to fill in the details with the life of Christ. So let's look back to verse 3 at the beginning. He is without father, without mother, without genealogy, no beginning of days, no end of life, and resembling thus the Son of God. Please understand, he is not literally without mother or father. That's not what the author's saying. It's not saying he didn't have a birthday or a death day. He was a real man. What he's saying is he's finding significance in what Genesis 14 does not say. 
That's the key to it. So don't, don't read this too literally. But what he's looking at is what Genesis 14 doesn't say. Anybody who is anybody in the book of Genesis is placed in a genealogy. Without exception. And the death of anybody who is anybody in the book of Genesis is clearly recorded. But mysteriously, this Melchizedek guy appears with no genealogical record, nor is his death recorded, and yet Abraham is paying him tithes and he's blessing Abraham. We got Enoch, we have Peleg, we have Noah, we have Abraham. All of them with genealogical indicators of who they are. All of their deaths are recognized, but not this guy. Just kind of drops into the text out of nowhere. What the text does not say is really significant. He is, in a prefigured way, one without a beginning and without an end. His priesthood doesn't end like the priests of Aaron that had to stop ministry at age 50. There's no end to this guy's ministry. We don't know when he died. So unlike the Levitical priests, we're given no idea of the man's roots. And the silence of Scripture, as they say at this point, is deafening. It is meant by what it doesn't say to get your attention and say, wait a minute, who is this Melchizedek? Forcing the thoughtful reader to ask about him. Melchizedek, then, is a type who enters the aisle of salvation history to prepare us for the eternal priestly antitype, Jesus Christ. Again, I would push back against those who make too much of this to say that he's a pre-incarnate Christ. No, he just resembles the Son of God. He isn't the Son of God. Certainly not an angel. He is simply one who draws us down the path and in the pattern. So Melchizedek enjoyed a continuous priesthood, not literally an unending one. However, as Morris puts it, what was true of Melchizedek simply as a matter of record, what's lacking in the record, was true of Christ in a fuller and more literal sense. So as the type, Melchizedek is like the Son. As the antitype, the Son is not like Melchizedek. There are some parallels, but it's Melchizedek who is like the Son. Verse 4. So now, let's think of this man. We're kind of getting, figuring out who he is, but now how, how great this man is. Behold, think of it. Abraham, the patriarch, gave a, gave a tenth of the spoils to this man. Again, Abraham is the hero of faith. He's the hero of Genesis. He's the patriarch of Israel. Yet Abraham pays tithes of his spoil to Melchizedek in the ancient world that would have indicated submission and honor. It's a rather stunning admission for a Jewish person reading the text honestly to say this guy with no genealogy, with no understanding really of who he is, Abraham sees him as the greater one. Would have been shocking. How shocking to consider that Melchizedek's authority to mediate as priest between Abraham and God was not granted by the Mosaic law. It's not the law that gave him the freedom to be a priest in this way. Verse 5, 
And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not, that is Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, from Levi, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. This is the man of promise. Again, this is the hero of faith. And he is giving tithes to Melchizedek. Okay, what are you saying? Verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. We can bless a superior as when the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. We can bless a superior. But there is a kind of blessing, such as here, where the greater blesses the inferior. Such solemn acts of prayer commend to God the person who is under the watch care of the priest or whatever authority figure spiritually is giving the blessing. And that's the idea. Melchizedek blesses Abraham that way. As a sideline, this is what sometimes pastors do as they pray over a newborn infant. They're passing on a blessing. They are in a position of spiritual watch care. There's nothing magical, mystical about it. But there's just a way of saying in a position of spiritual authority, we are praying a blessing over this child. We do the same as we bless children in our uh, infant dedication. As, as we, uh, same type of idea. And I would even encourage parents, maybe not all the time, but at least occasionally, as you're putting the little ones to bed, or even with older children in appropriate settings, just maybe place your hand upon their forehead and to quote number six, the Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Pass that blessing on to those that you, over whom you exercise spiritual watch care. That's just an application point on the side. But coming back to the point, it is Melchizedek who blesses Abraham, who, in a sense, prays for him, who calls upon God's grace in his life. Melchizedek then was in a position of spiritual authority as king and priest over Abraham, the father of Israel. The author presses this typological angle now, this fulfillment angle in verse 8. In the one case, ties are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Who's the, what's the one case? In the one case, tithes are received by Levitical priests. But in the other case, in Melchizedek's case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. That is, that there is no record of his death. So the Mosaic law required Levitical priests to end their active priestly ministry at age 50, Numbers 8.25. The priests were mortal men who died and had to pass their duties on to others. There just is nothing like that recorded of Melchizedek. So using that carving out of that typological idea, 
Like the Son of God, he's pictured as one who lives and serves without stoppage. Now in verses 9 and 10, the author pushes further on this reading of Genesis 14 in a way that might strike us as a little bizarre. We need to adjust to the Scriptures, not the other way around. Not dismiss it because it's bizarre, but say, well, what's going on here? Verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Yeah, that's not working for us. Uh, Western individualism, that, yeah, we don't, we don't even get that. But let's stretch ourselves. Ancient Near Eastern culture would have seen the logic in this thinking from a family identity. Oh, how we'd be delivered from so many problems if we weren't so individualistic. But they weren't. They saw themselves as part of a clan, part of a family. And there was a great devotion that was necessary there to express to that clan and within that clan. So when Abraham tied to Melchizedek, it was as if his great-grandson Levi was there in seed form, to put it as delicately as I can, paying tithes to Melchizedek. Abraham is there paying those tithes, and everyone who is his offspring then, in a sense, stands there with him doing the same thing. So in an ancient culture, a son was never greater than his father. In, in our individualistic culture, we always want to say, how, how do we supersede? How do we rise higher than our ancestors, than our parents? But for them, you never even thought in those terms. You might be greater just as individual comparison, but that wasn't an issue. The issue was everything that I am, I stand on the foundation of my family. And so from that perspective... When Abraham is giving a tithe to Melchizedek, it is in a sense then that Levi is doing the same thing. Levi, his great-grandson, is paying the tithe. Now, that would have blown away a lot of Jewish people. They weren't reading the law this way whatsoever. But it's saying that Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to Levi's. An idea that, again, unimaginable to them. But precisely what Genesis 14 is saying, and the only reason, uh, only reason, there's others, but a reason why we're sitting here as Gentiles worshiping Jesus. We've got to explain how we got in. We've got to explain what right we have here. We have to explain how we relate to the old covenant system. Here it is. Here it is. So long before the Mosaic Covenant was established, a superior priesthood to the Levitical priesthood was demonstrated in Genesis 14 if you read it carefully and if you deal with what's not there. All right. We go deeper. Jesus' priesthood is the antitype of Melchizedek's priesthood. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, so we're thinking Mount Sinai, the Levitical priest, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? We as Gentile believers in Christ aren't the ones who came up with this. 
This is what Scripture is teaching all along. But if the Levitical priesthood had been the answer to our salvation, the permanent answer, what further need would there have been for another priest like Melchizedek to show up in Genesis 14 and to show up in Psalm 110, verse 4? As I think, David on some level got the point. This is a logical deduction based on the author's understanding of Psalm 110 and verse 4. So chronology is utterly important here. Nearly half a millennium after the Mosaic Law was issued on Mount Sinai, David penned Psalm 110 with its reference to the priesthood of Melchizedek. There David prophesied a king of Israel who would sit at God's right hand in a position of power and authority. Amazingly, this son of David would be his Lord. Psalm 110.1 And not only king, but priest in the vein of Melchizedek. Philip Hughes speaks of Psalm 110.4 as this flash of revelation halfway between Mount Sinai and Christ. This, this verse in Psalm 110 passing like a comet Blazing light for a brief moment in the darkness that says, Gentiles, hang on. People, just wait. If the Levitical system was the completion or the pinnacle of God's saving purposes, as so many Jews were saying in that day, why did David speak of a superior priesthood? Now, sadly, the Jewish rabbis concocted all manner of twisted logic to get around this verse, Psalm 110.4. Some rabbis said that Abraham must have received an earlier revelation of the law from before Melchizedek. And that he passed that law on to Melchizedek, who then mediated it. I mean, that's playing with facts. Other rabbis went so far as to suggest that Melchizedek was Abraham's convert. But what they're doing is not reading Psalm 110.4 honestly. They simply dismiss this meaning, thus perpetuating a reverence for the law that actually ended up dishonoring God. Verse 12 makes a critical point in the argument, and it packs a massive theological punch in a very few words. Notice verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. There's a long-held tradition displayed today in, for instance, the Roman Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church in which this verse, this passage, and chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews are just simply misread. The book of Hebrews teaches that the priestly order of Melchizedek supersedes the Aaronic order of priests under the Mosaic Law. But since the mid-3rd century, church leaders have insisted that Christian priests are operating essentially as Aaronic priests, as priests of Aaron. Verse 12 puts this straight. The order of Aaronic priests and its method of succession is replaced by the new priesthood of David's greater son. You see that there in verse 12. There's a change of priesthood with a change in the law as well. 
Now, the long, along the line of thought, the Reformed Church under John Calvin's direction on this point, much with which I would agree, but not on this point, under Calvin's direction, they failed to wiggle free from all of Rome's instruction regarding the Mosaic Law. So Calvin following Aquinas, hang in there, this is going somewhere, but uh, he, he insisted that the Mosaic Law is divisible into moral, ceremonial, and civil parts. Which, of course, on some level it is. We can certainly categorize those three areas of the law. But he taught that the civil and ceremonial aspects of the law were ended with the coming of Christ. But that the moral aspect of the law persisted into the new age and is integrated into the new covenant. So the key here is, with verse 12, the author says something differently. The author argues that the priesthood does not serve the law, but the law serves the priesthood. The foundation is the priesthood. The law is applied to that priesthood. So the law stands, in a sense, on the priesthood. So from a strictly Reformed perspective, since the moral law ties the Testaments together, the change in priesthood from Aaron to Christ upholds the moral law that was given to Moses. And of course, on some level it does. But verse 12 teaches that there is a change in, where there is a change in priesthood, there is a change in the law. Because the law is calibrated to fit the priesthood. Now again, there is of course continuity in the moral aspects of the law of Moses and the new covenant. Jesus did not teach us, okay, now it's, a, it's all right to murder. It's all right now to commit adultery. No, he, he doubled down on those sins, chasing them from their deepest depths in the soul's motivations and affections. But the new covenant relationship we enter through Christ is a new covenant written on the heart. Not merely an upgrading of the Mosaic law. And it reflects a superior covenant, 8.6, but only so if the Mosaic law is not the controlling hermeneutical principle, but priesthood is. So the old covenant priesthood was abolished not because it was based on the ceremonial and civil aspects of the law. The old covenant law was superseded by the new and superior priesthood of Jesus. <clears throat> come up for air regarding that new priesthood verse 13 for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar that's Melchizedek for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests that word descended, we won't get into it, but it's very insightful. It's that he sprung up from the tribe of Judah. So nothing is said in the law about a priesthood from the tribe of Judah, but here we are. We have a high priest, not one after the order of Levi and Aaron, but one hailing from the tribe of Judah. He is then a superior high priest, the last high priest who mediates a new covenant, a new access to God through his sacrifice. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. 
Jesus, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, like the Levites, but by the power of an indestructible life, by his resurrection. What was true figuratively in a manner of speaking with Melchizedek is literally true of Christ. And God is preparing us through the ages to see this. Melchizedek had no recorded death, but the risen Christ literally has an indestructible life. He holds an eternal office in contrast to the Levitical priests. Support for this claim, verse 17, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Forever put in highlights, italics, forever now takes on a new meaning in Christ, a fulfilled meaning. He will forever live to intercede for his people as the final high priest. And that leads to the conclusion, we'll work through quickly here, but Jesus' priesthood forever replaces the Levitical priesthood under a new covenant. Verse 18, for on the one hand... A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. If you're enduring, you're awake, you got what that means, right? Uh, A former commandment set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, that's referring to the law which made nothing perfect. That law is set aside. The former commandment set aside, that is the Mosaic law under an old covenant, which rested on the Levitical priesthood, is now annulled. It is rendered obsolete because the priesthood has been changed. The law has been annulled, that old covenant law. Why did God deem it important to set aside the Mosaic law? Because of its weakness and its uselessness. That is, it was weak because of man's sin. It was useless, not in the short term, but ultimately. The sacrificial system under the Old Covenant was God's will. It served a purpose. It prepared people for Messiah. It drew people to God, Galatians 3. But the law had no capacity to help people obey its dictates. I use the illustration often, but it's like the family in the car with the little kids in the back, and it's a six-hour drive, and they say, stop fighting. Don't argue. Don't fight over space. Quit doing that to your sibling. They have no capacity to actually do it. Kids, you didn't hear that. Uh, You you need to do it when mom and dad say that. But the, the law simply brings out the anger, the frustration, the competitiveness, and all of that. It doesn't actually do anything to change the heart of the kids so they love one another more than themselves in those back seats. Right? The law told us the mind of God. It told us what was right and what was wrong. It did not equip the believer with the power to obey. It did not change the affections as such. I mean, read Psalm 119. Certainly there are deep affections for the Word of God that was right for believers, and God, through His Spirit, worked in the lives of believers. But overall, law can't change the heart. It can just show you your sin. So it was weak because of the sin of people. It was useless in the the end. And we could add to that uselessness. For for lawbreakers, it became an instrument of death, a light shining on their moral failures and disobedience. Its priests were sinners, and its sacrifices animals. God was carving out a way of salvation. He wasn't done yet. 
And you, readers of this letter, want to go back to that system because it's safer, it's easier. How foolish that would be. Verse 19, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And that Gentile believer in Christ is our hope as the offspring of Abraham by faith. There's a glorious reference to the hope we have in Christ and His saving grace. A better hope is introduced by the rising of a better priest who mediates a better covenant. By this covenant, God's people are able to do this. Let's not forget it. We're able to draw near to God. That'll mean more for those in the adult class this morning, but we are in Christ able to draw near to God. This better hope assures a way of access to God that supersedes the avenues available to the worship to worship under the old covenant. All right, we're there. Uh, so now as you leave, you will get a, a star or something to say, we endured this passage. It, there's a lot we could say here. Uh, we are living in a time people don't want to think. We want to be entertained. We want other people to think for us. I'm with you. I want to just rest my mind sometimes and not think. It's clear that the Spirit of God got behind this church today in this place and pushed us. If you're saying, I'm lost, this is not working, this is way too... Yeah, it's, it's, he's saying you can't be dull in hearing and gain from this. But I cannot stress again how significant it is that this is how we know we're on the right path. This is what God has set in place to help us see that. And what a tragic loss it is then to turn away from Christ. To let go of the faith. To just say, it's hard. It puts me at odds with people around me. And I want to just let go. And just not pursue Christ actively anymore. What a foolish decision that would be as we look back through the quarters of history and we see what God has done and is doing to save His people. He became the final high priest who fulfilled the sacrificial system. To abandon Him is to abandon God's salvation plan. And just as that was true for the original readers of this letter, this message, it's true for you. For those of you separated from Christ today, this is the answer. This is the work that God has prepared through the ages. God has established the ultimate pinnacle of His salvation plan in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Don't ignore that plan. Don't turn away from it. Repent and trust Him. Abandon the way of Christ and you abandon the only salvation of your soul. This final and great high priesthood. You need a high priest and you have one. You have a high priest who will actually bring you to God. Turn away from Him and you abandon all hope. Turn to Him and you will find hope in His forgiveness. For those of us who have done that, we have a great high priest. Let us run to Him. Let us embrace Him with devotion in our daily lives. We looked last week at 6, 13 to 20. 
And we talked about that passage in our home groups. I wonder, did the rehearsal of God's promises to us focus our faith on Him this week? Are we trusting in those promises? Are we coming to this great high priest? Are we running to Him in prayer? Are we calling out to Him as He says? Priest who stands and can sympathize with our weaknesses. Is it changing our prayer lives? Is it changing the focus of faith that we have? What's the difference between a pastor and a priest? The so-called ironic priests of today carry on a priestly function which is absolutely obsolete. It's over. Not only is such a priest wasting his time, he fails to yield to the high priestly office of the risen and reigning Christ. The high priest who has filled the office, who fills the office once and forever. So those who believe they operate in an Aaronic priesthood fail to perceive the finished work of the priest who aligns with the Melchizedekian order, not the Aaronic order. This priest serves forever with an indestructible life. He serves alone because he offered the final and fully sufficient sacrifice for sins and he'll never be replaced. He can't be. This priest serves forever with an indestructible life. He serves alone in that way. The priests of our day think there's more to offer. There's more sacrifices to be made. To add to the sacrifice of Christ. To continue it in, uh, in perpetuity. But Christ doesn't need to be offered again and again. What he said on the cross he meant, it is finished. He fulfilled the system. He kept the law. He died as the final sacrifice and he lives today as our great high priest. It is finished. Pastors simply shepherd the flock of God to trust and to hold on to that finished work. So let us rejoice, verse 19, that we can draw near to God because of this high priest's work. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for aiding us and helping us by your Spirit to understand as far as we have this passage. And I pray that if we even are missing a lot of the details and so much more could be said and rightly applied, May we at least set in a hard stake here that Jesus is our great high priest. That this is not imagination on our part, that this is not fanciful, but that this is a work that you have been doing through the ages and now in our assembly bringing us as Gentiles to know Christ as Lord and Savior and to as people of faith with Abraham to walk in confidence in your promises. We thank you that the law of God through salvation and the Holy Spirit is written on our hearts. We thank you for the love and the devotion to Christ that you're deepening within us. Bring to Jesus, we pray as Savior, those who do not know him. And may we go from this place thankful that because of Christ we can draw near to you. 
May we never take that for granted. But may it drive us to our knees in prayer this week. May it drive us to continue to consider and trust your promises. And may we hold on to Christ firmly, knowing that all along you are holding on to us. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.